Listening Dog Media. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here we go. Curious how your box looks like. It's like a, a an old school record box, you know? Oh, sweet. I can hear it. How to DJ. How to DJ. DJ. How to DJ. Know your music and know your crowd and just enjoy yourself. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins and this is How to DJ. Believe in yourself enough to get yourself out there and doing it. At the end of the day, you're getting booked to do a job. You have to try your best to make people happy. How to DJ. A podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. I would still believe music definitely saved me. I would have been a disaster. And with me now is a DJ who in 1994 opened his own club. The bouncers basically told me, he's like, go inside, you're not going to make any money. He's a producer and a label boss. Because of growing up in the 80s, I always had in me that I wanted to create kind of music that I grew up with. He's had residences at Space in Ibiza and around the world. My longest set was 16 hours, which was uh, an absolute trip. And I loved every moment of it and every second of it. You have to be prepared for whatever is to come. You can't plan this and and you've got to be lucky at times too. And I, I, I do know I got lucky a lot of time. I wanted to be more defined in what I do. And the only way to be more defined in what I play was yeah, more or less produce what you want to play because nobody else knows what you want to play but you. He's award-winning techno DJ, Chris Liebig. Hi. Hello, Chris. Chris, before we head into the big box of questions, can you pinpoint when your journey in music started? There's a, quite a few moments which I can pinpoint towards to. Um, like the earliest ones are probably when I was about 14, 15 years old and we started to do little, uh, let's say, basement parties in friends' places and nobody wanted to take care of the music and people who did, I never really liked the music. So I was always the one like, ah, you know what, guys, I'll take care of the music tonight. So I was the one in the corner with the tape deck uh, rewinding and forwarding tapes. And that kind of was the start because I always had a quite a tape collection recordings that I did from radio. And then the journey went on until I had my first residency in a student club in the little village that I came from, kind of a student university city in the 90s, like the early 1990, actually. And that's where I started to play on a regular basis. Do you remember what you were playing on those cassettes back then? Oh, absolutely. Um, it was everything from Genesis um, to some prog rock, uh, charts music, hip hop, some soul stuff. 
especially lo loads of 80s stuff, which I come from, new romantic stuff, but also like obviously Duran Duran, ABC, Heaven 17, all that stuff, Deepish Mode. But I do know that I always only played the stuff that I liked. I was never happy to play something which I despised or didn't like. And so I kind of always had a certain selection. Were your parents into music? Actually, not really. No, we had a small stereo setup. There's some very old records. There were like two or three Beatles records. That was it. It was more my brother. I have a four-year-older brother who uh, started to have quite a nice record collection. He was very inspired by uh, the early rock stuff from the 70s. and I remember I, I sneaked a lot into his room, listened to his records, and that's kind of where my early love for Genesis and Peter Gabriel comes from as well. Until I think on my 15th or 16th birthday, I got my own little stereo system with a turntable, a cassette tape, and a radio. Yeah, that was kind of the start where I really started my own record collection as well. Where did you used to buy music from? Usually we had a quite good record stores. Uh, some record stores were um, part of a bigger department store in the city that I came from. Um, but we also had quite uh, a few dedicated record stores and um, with very passionate people working there, even in the department stores. So when you went there once a week with your uh, allowance money and, and tried to pick that one record that you could afford, that you, yeah, you always had good talks and advice. Do you think that Music was your life as a teenager. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think it was always my soundtrack of my life. Yeah, I've always had music on me with the, the first Walkman, trying to always have fresh batteries on you so you would never run out in the breaks of the school. I always listened to music. Yeah. And I can't really tell you where that came from because it definitely didn't come from my parents. I think it was kind of this world that I escaped into, which I always loved to. I remember the very early times when I started to listen to music, the feelings that it gave you. It was funny enough, it was uh, my first memories are listening to ABBA. And I had this little teeny tiny tape deck with a radio in it. And I placed it like under the pillow of my bed and I was listening to music uh, late at night and stuff like this. Yeah. But there wasn't anything to distract you from, was there? You had a presumably a happy childhood. My childhood was pretty, um, not very eventful, let's put it this way. Uh, it was pretty normal. You know, you had your friends all around and uh, all my friends were into music too. I mean, it was a great time to be into music, really. It was the middle of the 80s. And uh, I believe it's one of the best times of some of the best music was released at that time. Some of the most groundbreaking stuff. And I, I'm really happy that I got to experience this like 84, 85, 86, 87 if you look back into the charts of those times, you're just like, wow, there's so many classics, you know, released on a, on a weekly basis. It was a great time to listen to music. And a big question here for you, Chris. When did you first get into techno? That is a, a good question, because the club that I mentioned earlier, the student club where I played at, around 92, it was when techno became bigger and bigger, and a little bit more mainstream. And it was not just obscure niche clubs that were playing that. The club that I played at actually had a sign, we don't play any techno here, because it was kind of like a no-go for some clubs who had the student people in there that you you kind of played, let's say the, um, you wouldn't call that techno, but the Frankfurt sound, let's say Snap, for example, or Mr. Vane by Culture Beat and, and all that stuff. You know, it just was Frankfurt productions, which were very electronic heavy, obviously, like Snap. 
um, but it was not called techno. But uh, there was obviously the techno labels like IQ and Hardhouse. And we had this techno DJs in that student town where I grew up, Gießen it's called. And we had this really one amazing record store, which had a, quite a selection of like hip hop soul stuff, but also had a huge corner of techno music. And I found myself looking through techno records there while the techno DJs at that time were kind of looking at me from the side. It was like, what is this guy doing in our corner here in the, in the shop? So I started to have this agreement arrangement with the owner of the shop that he would like secretly put like the best records away from me so I could buy them without anyone else noticing. And I had this issue that I wasn't really able to play them in the club. I could maybe sneak in one of those techno records at the last record. And uh, yeah, that was must have been around 93 where I made the decision, I'm done with what I used to play. I want to only play this electronic kind of music techno. I was very heavily influenced by Strictly Rhythm, by the house stuff coming from the States. Uh, a lot of British techno uh, was very influential, some Belgium stuff. And I was, yeah, I was totally sold. I, I, I didn't want to go back. I, that was what I wanted to do. Tell me about that club. Can you describe it? That club was called Red Brick. It was uh, called Red Brick because it was kind of red bricks all around. Um, it was only holding about 300 people. And it was one of the few places that were allowed to open till three. There was only actually two places in that student town that were allowed to open longer than one o'clock. And uh, so this was allowed to open till three. And uh, when I started my, let's say, residency there, it was on a Thursday night. And Thursday nights were not really busy nights, but they became quite a favorite night for people. Uh, not only in that club, Thursday nights became quite popular to go out for people. And it was just that I did play on that night. And suddenly those nights were becoming more and more busy. And I started to have a pretty full night, which was almost comparable to a Saturday night. And it was mostly because of the reason the club was allowed to open till three. So once every bar was closed at one, People just came over and just hung out for another two hours. So had you left school by this time? Um, no, I was still in school and uh, I was actually uh, in Germany at uh, some point. We had the choice back then to either go to uh, have the military service or to do civil service instead, which was kind of twice as long. I was never really a military person, so I decided to do the civil service, even though it was uh, twice the time. But I really enjoyed that. I, I, I kind of had a good time during this because I concentrated mostly on music, did my civil service for two years. And once that was done, I actually went to university. I really, at that point, still didn't really believe that DJing would be at all anything you could do in your life. I mean, it was still at a time where people were saying like, so what are you going to do in the future? And nobody would ever say like, I'm going to be a DJ. Like that was not unheard of, you know unless you were working for a radio station. What did you do at uni and, and where did you go? I went to the same city where I came from. It's a big university city. And I actually start, started, I have to laugh about it. I started studying economics, which I'm, I'm the complete wrong person to study this. But honestly, I had no idea what, what I was wanted to do. And, and it was very, very quickly, I found myself only hanging out in the cafeteria of the university rather than in the halls where you study. And uh, when end of 93, uh, the owner of the club, actually that same club, the Red Brick Club, told me he's going to close down. He, he doesn't want to do this anymore because he did this club for like 15 years. He, he was like, you know, you, you do like this techno music. Why don't you take over, just rename it, rebuild it a little and do your own thing. And that was the point where I decided, you know what, uh, if nobody's ever going to hire me as a techno DJ, because I'm not known as a techno DJ, yet I do love this music. 
So why don't I run my own club and, and basically book myself as a resident? And that was the start of it. So, wow. That was in 1994. That became the Spin Club, right? Exactly. That was the Spin Club that I opened then in January 1994. And was that the best or worst decision of your life? <laughs> At the moment, it was the worst. Right now, I would say it was probably the best. That's why you should never judge any situation, any any outcome, because uh, I was laughing about the, the fact that I studied economics because I was such a bad business person. I mean, I knew mostly every person who came into the club. So when I was standing at the door, nobody paid any money to get in because I always said like, oh, come in until the bouncers basically told me, it's like, do not stand here. Just go inside. You're not going to make any money. And then when I was behind the bar, like everybody was just basically getting the beers from me. So it lasted kind of a little longer than one year, two months or something until the bank basically closed the club down and said, like, we're not going to finance you anymore. And, and I ended up having, I remember I had like 50,000 marks debt with the bank, which at that time probably was something around like 30,000 pounds or 20, 25,000 pounds. And uh, at that time, I thought like, oh, my God, what did I do? What what happened with me? Um, that was not a good idea to, that I did this. But yet I, I was basically DJing every weekend in my own club and had actually a good crowd. It was always a good night, but we just didn't make enough money. So after this was done, I had to make a decision. Do I go back to university and try something there or what am I going to do? And at that same time, it was uh, IQ, the record label IQ, Sven Fates record label, basically, what, which was uh, based in Offenbach near Frankfurt, tried to look for someone who was able to speak English. And I was an exchange student in the US uh, in my school time. So my English was, was kind of good. And um, I was like, yeah, I, I can do that because they had an office in the UK and they needed someone to keep the conversation up. And that was my entrance into, let's say, the uh, music business world. I started working for IQ Hardhouse uh, then in, I think it was around May, June uh, 1995. And that's where I started to travel to, to London quite a bit, almost on a monthly basis, just to always be in the London office, go back and try to uh, communicate what they were doing with what the German office was doing. It was a great time. I, I met a lot of people during this time. It was awesome. And was there ever a point at which you wish you'd never quit uni? Uh, no, never, ever. I, I never I never really looked back. I, I would still believe music definitely saved me. I would have been a disaster. I probably would have pulled through the university somehow, but I, I could have never seen myself, like, uh, I don't know, doing a day-to-day -day job every morning, getting up. I don't think it was uh, something that I could have done, really. How quickly did things move for you then, Chris, to the point, let's say, of Ibiza? Actually, rather quickly. It is interesting when you look back and see how things were developing. And you have to be prepared for whatever is to come because you can't plan this. And you've got to be lucky at times, too. And I do know I got lucky a lot of times. We had a club in Frankfurt called the Omen Club, which probably at that point was next to the Trezor in Berlin two of the most famous techno clubs maybe around the world, you know, definitely highly influential. Like Frankfurt had a quite a big techno scene around this time. And this was basically the most popular techno club, definitely within Germany next to Trezor and some other clubs in Berlin. And because the Omen Club was very closely connected to the IQ label, I found myself, I think it must have been in the summer of 95, pretty quickly after I started working at that company on a Friday night sitting on my desk and Goodgroove, another DJ who was A&R at that Hardhouse label, 
came in and looked at me. He's like, Chris, you do DJ, right? You, you are a DJ, right? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Yeah, I DJ. You know, I've asked everyone, but no one has time tonight. And my partner, Pauli, has got sick and I'm supposed to play at the Omen tonight. Uh, and I don't want to do the whole night. It's too long. We had no closing hours in Frankfurt. Would you come in in the beginning and just play the first two hours? He asked me. And I was like, yeah, sure, of course. So I got my record back. And um, the thing is, I never really been to that club before, <laughs> as funny as that sounds, because I was always playing at little parties on the weekend around the city where I was living, which is kind of 60 kilometers away, um, about 40 miles away from Frankfurt. So it was kind of my first time to go to this club. I had no idea what other DJs were playing there. I had trouble finding the club <laughs> on that night. I, I remember I came even like two, three minutes too late. I walked downstairs to the managers. They looked at me, he's like, what do you want? And I'm like, I, uh, Klaus uh, asked me to play in the beginning. Oh yeah, it's you, okay, um, yeah, just go upstairs. The light J will explain you everything and then, then just play. And so I just started playing and it just turned out to be quite fun. And the people were just like dancing and, and everything worked out. And then Klaus, the other DJ came in and he looked at me, he's like, you know what? Just keep playing for a little bit longer. You're doing a good job. So I ended up playing till four in the morning. And when I walked down to the management again, they looked at me, he's like, hey, we heard you did a pretty good job up there. Can we have your phone number? So maybe we call you again if we have like someone missing here. We need a warm-up DJ. And I'm like, sure. And essentially, they called me right next week. And this is how I started to get my residency at this club. And this was kind of a really big step because when they booked you, they could put in brackets behind your name, Omen, which for all techno lovers was like, oh, he's a resident of the Omen. Let's go to see him play. And then things just developed. Things just happened. And I started to play at the Trezor regularly. And then in uh, 98, Sven Fate started his cocoon night on Ibiza at the Amnesia Club. And in 98, he did, uh, was it 99 or 98? I'm not <laughs> entirely sure, but he did four test nights of his cocoon nights. And I was resident from the very first moment. And I remember I played in the main room of Amnesia Ibiza. So that's how Ibiza came about and everything started very quickly. Do you remember your first night at space? Oh, yes. That was actually the very first time I played ever on Ibiza. It was in 96. And uh, there were some German promoters from the Cologne area who did a weekly day there because it was a daytime club at that point with the open terrace. And for some reason, you know, I had some friends in Cologne, DJ friends who kind of got me into this. They said like, hey, if you pay your own flight, you know, we give you accommodation. You can play here for one of our days. And that was in the summer of 96, and it was my very first time going to Ibiza, and uh, I still remember exactly where the DJ booth was inside. I, I didn't get to play on the terrace. I, I got to play inside, and it was absolutely incredible. <laughs> it was awesome. Do you remember any of what you played? I could probably easily reconstruct that set. It was in 96, so most likely I was playing a lot of Touche records. You remember Dobra and Jamis? Probably a lot of English stuff as well. Definitely a lot of Peace Frog loops later, all that kind of stuff. All right, Chris, time now for the first of your five questions from 45 in this record box I've got here. All the questions are on 45 sleeves, so you just say when as I dip into the box, okay? Okay, stop. Your first question from the box then is, if you weren't a DJ, what would you be? <laughs> Probably a barkeeper. Sounds like you were not very good at it. <laughs> <laughs> if I can add something to the story, my first um, residency at that student club where I still didn't play techno, 
you know, the beer tap was right next to the DJ setup. And you were basically earning one mark less than the people working behind the bar, but yet you had to DJ and do the beers. <laughs> and the reason why you got one mark less was actually that the owner said, well, you don't have to barkeep the whole time. You can play some music in between. So you were basically mixing the records, but then the other barkeepers told you, hey, we need three beers. And you're just like tapping the three beers at the same time. I was actually pretty good at that. Maybe I would have become a barkeeper. Yeah. <laughs> Do you drink when you DJ? At the moment, actually not. Um, I used to drink quite some beers and I do like my uh, tequila here and there. But at the moment, after the pandemic was over, I, I thought like, you know what? I want to be more sober, less alcohol. And I haven't been drinking any, any beers or any, any drinks really while I was DJing uh, since we're back on tour here. And it's been really good, I have to say. How are you finding the difference? You definitely have it easier to getting up next morning. Traveling is easier. And I am a lot more focused, to be honest. I'm more focused. I feel my music in a different way. Not that I was ever a heavy drinker. I've never been really a heavy drinker. But it's, it's interesting how clear your head is with everything that's going on. Do you think you feel the crowd in a different way? Yes, I kind of do. I am a little bit more feeling like an non-judgmental observer, if that makes any sense to you. Yeah. It's like I'm standing there and I'm kind of observing things, how things are going, and I'm kind of like having a better and quicker idea of what I should do next in order to get the crowd to go to other places. Kind of like a non-judgmental parent. Uh, is there such a thing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good question. <laughs> All right, back into the box for your second question. Chris, you say when. Yes. Stop. Do you have a favorite effect? Yes, I have to say. I mean, I, there's two effects that I'm always using when I DJ. I mean, it's different things. But I would first say my favorite effect is a delay effect. And the second favorite is a reverb effect. Sure. Is it okay to call you a, a geek? Yes, you can definitely call me a geek. <laughs> I'm a very heavy sound fanatic and, I'm, and I love my machines and my plugins and, and all that. Yeah. I suppose as soon as you could afford stuff as a teen you were trying to get into the latest stuff. Yeah, I've always been trying to, on the production side of things and also on the DJ side of things, to kind of keep up with the technology. I always felt like techno music is also about the advancement of technology and that we can use technology to our favor. I've always been a strong believer in that. When did you start producing music yourself? That was also in 95. I teamed up with a friend of mine who already had quite a few synthesizers and uh, an Atari ST. And uh, I pretty quickly learned the early firms of Cubase. And yeah, that's when we started our first label as well. It was called Soap Records back in the days, which we had actually quite some early success with. And then I started my label Audio in the early days too, in 96. And uh, yeah, I always found producing a very big part of DJing because I felt I wasn't really only happy to play other people's music. I wanted to be more defined in what I do. And the only way to be more defined in what I play was, yeah, more or less produce what you want to play because nobody else knows what you want to play but you. And that was always kind of my motivation to also get into production. And also, it's a lot of fun to make music. Your new album is Another Day, and it's nearly all collaborations. Yes. And some beautiful ones. Tom Adams, for example, on the album. And uh, I'm a huge fan of Polly Scattergood. Tell me about the making of this album. 
Ralf Hildenbeutel is my co-producer on this album. And uh, Ralf and I go way back too, because, uh, and that's interesting, Ralf used to be one of, let's say, three main producers of this early Frankfurt techno sound that actually got me into techno. He was uh, one of the main producers for IQ Records, the company that I then started working for in 95. So we've met there in the early days. And it was around 2015 when I felt I wanted to do a little bit more musical recordings, not only like techno, not to say that techno is easier to produce, but I'm not a very musical person. I've ne never had any formal musical training. But I've always, because of growing up in the 80s, I always had in me that I wanted to create kind of music that I grew up with. And I knew Ralf, he's an incredible musician, would be able to help me exactly in the fields that I was missing out on. And we connected pretty quickly where we produced the album Burn Slow, my first album on mute. And when that came out in 2018, early 2019, we already started with uh, producing music for the Another Day album, that's how it kind of started. It's interesting, uh, perhaps this is stereotyping, forgive me if it, if it feels like it is, but no mention of Kraftwerk at all. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it is interesting. Kraftwerk didn't really play a big role in my life, to be honest, in my early days. I was more, when, when you go back to the 80s, I was really more listening to the poppier side of stuff. I was more drawn to, let's say, especially the British New Romantics things, you know? I was more Joy Division, New Order, The Cure, rather than a Kraftwerk for some reason. But I'm sure you, more now with time, appreciate just how big an influence they have been on all genres of music, I would say. Oh, absolutely. Later on, I found out more about their music, and I've gotten really, really, really heavily into their music. But uh, it's not like that I would run around these days and say like, oh, they've been a huge influence on my early career, because they haven't. Honestly, I only discovered them on that scale much, much later. DJ, DJ. How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Still to come. I have sometimes uh, six channels open on my mixer. And then sometimes I'm looking down myself in disbelief, like, what's going on here right now? You always have a baseline of being prepared. That's a DJ should always have that, I believe. You know, you should always know all your music. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Chris, back into the box now then for your third question. Say when. And stop it here. Uh, there may be more than one answer to this from you, but uh, <laughs> it, it's name two records that you love playing back to back. Oh, there, <laughs> there's like loads of more. You know, my DJing style is not really only bound on certain type of record. It's a lot going on all the time. You know, I have sometimes... Uh, six channels open on my mixer and then sometimes i'm looking down myself in disbelief like what's going on here right now so <laughs> it's hard for me sometimes to say like these are the two records that i love to mix together but lately i've been doing a mix which worked so amazingly which is uh Fjark is a duo from berlin they're doing some fantastic techno music and they have one kind of breakbeatish title a, a track which is called Candide. 
And uh, mixing in my album version of Something Halfway works like a wonder. It's, it's just a treat. So I, I could tell you right now, this is one of my favorite mixes, although I don't really have favorite mixes. Is it fair to ask you, if you look down at your decks and you've got six different tracks there, what might you have on them? Well, one of them is definitely having the kick drum and the bass running. Another one probably has a track running completely through from the beginning to the end. Another one might have just a little loop with a little hi-hat pattern going on. The other one maybe has a certain vocal or vocal bit going on, which I sometimes put a little effect on and put it in. And then I have my machina running, which has some additional claps and snares and stuff going on. Chris, back into the box there for question four. Okay, say what? And stop it here. Question four. Which gives you the biggest kicks, playing music or making it? Uh, (laughs) I would say playing music because the music you made, you can play for the first time in front of a bigger audience and see their reactions. All right, back into the box for your final question, Chris. So once again, say or when. Uh, And pick this one. Okay. Where's the weirdest place you've ever DJ'd? The weirdest place I've ever DJed probably was also my weirdest DJ gig I ever had. It was in the Rai Arena in Amsterdam, a huge place in front of like 40,000 people on a little teeny tiny DJ booth right in the middle of the big hall. And it was super weird because you were just like turning all the time and you had different people in front of you all the time. And um, in itself, a very weird experience because they had a fireworks going off in the moment that I started and it was in the early 2000s when I started playing with Final Scratch and the fireworks completely put ashes over my whole system (laughs) (laughs) and everything broke down and I was standing there in silence in front of 40,000 people still turning around and everybody looking at me. Do you feel comfortable eh, in front of people? I feel comfortable in front of people if I have a DJ booth separating me from those people. <laughs> if you've got something to do. If i got something to do, exactly. I always love to have something to do, yeah. Otherwise, I'd rather be a little bit more in the dark corner. Through the years, Chris, where have your favourite residencies been? I would say number A, it would be uh, Amnesia and Ibiza. It's probably the, the main room of Amnesia Ibiza is probably the room that I've played most in my life. And I love this room always. Then I would have to say the Omen Club, which was my first residency, because it was my DJ school. You've learned so much during the times I had my residency there. I've met so many amazing DJs and people there during this time, as well as Trezor. I had a residency at the old Trezor. And in modern times, I have to say my, you could almost call it residency, but they don't really like to hear that of people who only play like there three times. It's Berghain in Berlin. And it's just one of the most amazing experiences. What's so special is at Berghain, which no other club really comes kind of close to worldwide, I have to say, is that everyone who is in this club is definitely dedicated to have a good time, is extremely open-minded to listen to what's going on. And as a DJ, you still have to really deliver. Like You cannot just play a kick drum and a hi-hat and expect the people to party on that for like two hours. People in there know their stuff. And if you do it in the right way and you keep it interesting, people are sticking with you and they show their appreciation. And that makes it so very special. I could go on because there's other places which are amazing too. But uh, these are the top four, let's say, put it this way. What about your favorite places in the UK? 
Wow, there's also a lot. Uh, I always love fabric, but I, I guess everybody says that. Yeah. Printworks was great. Uh, I played there two weeks ago. But then uh, I, I remember the old days as well, Orbit Leeds. If some of you remember that one, that was uh, I was very regularly playing there. Very fond memories. Yeah, there's a lot of great places to play. Um, how do you manage your own well-being when you're on tour? I am looking after myself quite well, meaning I tr really try to get enough sleep always. I love to sleep. And... Um, I eat very healthy, I believe. I'm a vegan since uh, 12 years, which was very helpful for me uh, and my well-being, you have to say, because I got less colds and not sick anymore. And I do love to exercise. I'm always trying to be fit for the winter because I'm a skier and uh, now I even live in the mountains. And before I got into techno music or into DJing, I was uh, doing a lot of sports in my life. So I think I still got that with me. So that is very helpful. Right, Chris, they were your five questions from the box. I've just got one or two more here for you, if that's all right. Sure. These are quick fires. Of course. What's your tech of choice? First of all, I would have to say is the mixing desk that I'm using, because this is your instrument. And I've included in this instrument, I would include my native instrument, Machina, which is a wonderful, not only a MIDI controller, it's a drum machine. It's, it's so many things. It has big pads. It has... Uh, great functionality and together with my mixing desk i would say since i never learned an instrument i built my instrument myself by having controllers having a machine having this mixing desk where everything comes together and i know exactly with my fingers and my hands which knob i have to turn which button i have to push which fader i have to move in order to get the sound out of it which I want to get out of it. And in that way, you could compare it with any other instrument in a way, you know, you do something with your hands and the sound comes out. And yeah, that's how I see it. Do you have a favorite warm up DJ? Uh, the one who doesn't exceed a speed limit of, <laughs> of a certain tempo. <laughs> how much do you plan your sets? Um, let's say about 15 to 20%. It depends on event. If it's a club, if it's a festival, if it's a festival, I probably look into it a bit more. You always have a baseline of being prepared. That's a DJ should always have that, I believe. You know, you should always know all your music. But it's not like that I go and create a playlist before every gig and that's what I'm going to play. I rather want to know all my music. Then sometimes for festivals, I, I put a playlist together so I don't really have to search while everything is going on. But in a club, I love to leave it open for whatever happens in the moment. How long do you like to play for? What's your optimum time for a set? Uh, I would say my optimum time sort of is between three and four hours. But then again, depending on the location as well. My longest set at Berghain was 16 hours, which was uh, an absolute <laughs> trip. And I loved every moment of it and every second of it. 16 hours. That's insane. Uh not for Berlin standards, there's <laughs> other people who play longer. But then sometimes I play uh, here and there. It happens maybe once or twice a year that I play 10 hours at somewhere. And uh, I, I think that's a good number too. But I, I would go with like three to four hours, which is great if you have the right location. But I also can tell you that if it's a great festival, a two-hour slot is all that you need to get your point across in two hours. What's the biggest difference, would you say, between playing in a venue and a, a festival? Well, the venue. You can push your limits a little bit more. You can expect a little bit more of the people in a club to go with you to places which are a little bit maybe more obscure, not as obvious. While on a festival, 
I also like it. It's, it's, it's not a criticism. I also like that to play quite obvious. And so I think these are the differences. And the great thing is that you can have both. To be able to experience both of these sides as a DJ is absolutely amazing. Chris, I've loved talking to you. I've got one last question for you. Sure. It's the end of the world. And you have to play the last three records on earth. What would they be? Huh. First of all, my most favorite track ever that would be a massive attack's unfinished sympathy. And then if we go into techno, I definitely would choose uh, Lesenby, Sacred Circles. And as a very last one, <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's a good one. As a very last one, I mean, it would be suitable because it's called Close Down and it's the last track on the album. It has this beautiful ending. It would be the perfect last record to ever listen to because it has this very long reverb of a very, very nice... Uh, sounding piano key that kind of like for me always a, a perfect ending for the moment okay so that's uh, the closing track on uh, another day the latest album it's called close down as well a little reference to my love of the cure ah yes of course and uh, from another day the latest album chris thank you chris steving and that was how to dj thanks for listening please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from 